welcome to Puck It, We'll Do It Live, our pre-recorded Minnesota Twins podcast. Zach Pierce here alongside Dan Hayes, our fantastic Twins writer. I was not here last week as Dan uh, talked to Corey Provis. I believe it was to- was it entirely about Pearl Jam, Dan, or was there other co- topics covered as well? <laughs> it was about 82% about Pearl Jam, uh, but it was, you know, we, we mixed in some Twins in there and some homeschooling and some other stuff but yeah it was it was pretty much about pearl jam so thanks for listening yeah i didn't get around to it. it's been a bit of a week around the pierce household but um it's it's in my saved items i don't know can i can i save a podcast and listen to it no that was a lie it's not in my saved items but i will get to it eventually uh but back this week no guests after uh did we go bramer and provis back to back no we had one week in between one week we, we skipped. Right. Well, yeah. we're uh, we're still trying to bring you guests as often as we as we can here in these uh, strange times that continue. Baseball still with no uh, discernible return in sight or any sort of plan for how they're going to do it. Uh, I feel like I could just play that same part of this podcast on repeat every week. But um, we've had some good stuff on the site, nevertheless. And as we continue to try to uh, keep everybody entertained and informed and uh whatever else during this time and uh dan you had a couple stories go back to back this week that were um pretty cool one was a little out of left field uh in terms of the timing of it the other one was uh, very well timed on the five-year anniversary of the game with no fans between the baltimore orioles and chicago white Sox back in 2015 obviously the Circumstances for that one were um, over similarly grim uh, over the Freddie Gray protests that were going on in Baltimore. But you and Dan Connolly on the Baltimore side were both there that day and uh, put together a really nice oral history on that game, what it was like uh, for the players that were there, and it obviously holds a special relevance uh, knowing that in all likelihood, whenever baseball comes back, that sort of thing will be the norm. Yeah, and it was... A strain. I know the word surreal must have been used thirty times by people quoted in the in the oral history. Uh, it was a strange, surreal day. It was a strange, five surreal times, time, actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, well, good, good on. It felt like I must have edited out a couple myself <laughs> then. Uh, repetitive quotes and stuff like that. But um, you know, the, it was such a weird feeling to be there. I mean, there was a uniqueness to it and some intrigue with it. Um, and then there was all the, you know, you're talking about the city there, there's rioting going on and, and like Tuesday morning, the day before the game, I woke up and there were, you know, about a hundred national guard, uh, or national guardsmen down below my hotel wielding assault rifles and, uh, lining the inner Harbor to keep it safe. And I mean, that's kind of what we were dealing with for 48 hours was just like this uncertain time so there was that there was just stress there was it was it was a really strange emotional time in in that way and it was exhausting and it was a lot of like the pure sound of the game was really cool there were a lot of things that were very cool about it um but i I just remember at the end feeling overwhelmed that night and just ready to move on to the next city after the previous, you know, 72 hours and how they'd unfolded. Um, so diving into that again was, was cool because the one thing I, I did enjoy um, at the time, especially in the aftermath, the day of was not the time to get it. 
every it was so quick. Um, but over the next couple days, tracking down stories from guys and their observations of what had happened while they were there, and it was really interesting. And what it's kind of funny is that that the White Sox actually came to the Twins right after that, um, after the Baltimore trip, and they'd played one time in probably five or six days at that point. They had a rain out on on the weekend before, and um, so they had this really this disjointed stretch and. I remember that series because Chris Sale and Jose Quintana, who were great pitchers at the time in the middle of great seasons, both got their asses kicked by the Twins in that series. And the team was was uh, sick. A lot of guys had the flu, stuff like that. But um, it was cool to hear them reflect over those next couple of days in Minnesota and Minneapolis about what they remembered and hearing different stories and getting to go back and put those into a oral history like this was fun. You know, Dan Connolly from the – uh, Baltimore office and I started working on this probably about 10 days before the pandemic um, shut down spring training. And so we've been working on it for a couple months with the eye on this April 29th date. And uh, it, it was nice to put it all together and see how people reflected on one of the strangest events I know I will ever cover in my lifetime. And, you know, <clears throat> before this all came along, um, certainly was up there with uh, the most uh, surreal times I've ever experienced in my life, for sure. There was a lot in the story, Dan, that, that was so interesting to hear, and, and some of it was interesting in a fun way, some of it interesting in a, a kind of thinking about how this is going to translate when whenever baseball gets back to business here. And I thought one of the emotions that you could, you could feel throughout the story was that players kind of didn't want to be there, and Part of that was obviously because of what was going on in society outside of the walls, but part of it too was just uh, the lack of emotion in the stadium. And uh, I think Micah Johnson said, uh, there was nothing to feed off of. It's really, really strange. It's like, let's just get out of here. Let's just forget about this one. And um, the White Sox fell behind 6 nothing in the first inning and then kind of just wanted to get out of there because uh, there was just uh, no atmosphere in the game. And uh, you hear other people talking about how the game was uh, so fast because there wasn't some of that pomp and circumstance that usually comes with uh, with fans in the stadium, walk-up walk music, songs, all that stuff. So you start to wonder what, uh, you know, what the game day production is even going to look like when baseball comes back and how players are going to respond to just the, the lack of an environment. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's one part of that that's, uh, that was a one-off and, and that was the only thing at the time. And this would become part of the routine, playing without fans. But, uh, you know, the Orioles play, uh, thank God I'm country boy, John Denver, uh, right at the seventh inning stretch. Who knew how critical that was to some of those late inning rallies for the Orioles over the years. Um, but it, it's true that the, like, the atmosphere of is critical. And even just the general buzz that comes with people being in there. And believe me, I've covered uh, I covered the White Sox from 2012 to 17 through some pretty uh, bad times where no fans came to games, and there still was some kind of a buzz from the 1,500 people that were in the stadium, you know, and that was large largely absent that day. I mean, you heard everything. You could hear the glove pop. You could hear the bat crack, and it was so clean. And I, watching some of the highlights, they. Uh, <clears throat> They were very clear, crystal clear. The noise was 
it was crazy what you were listening to. I mean, it's, it's even spring training has a little bit more noise than that, but this was a game. And so adjusting, I, I have to think there would be a period of adjustment. If this is a, a routine thing where there's games all the time without fans, that the league would have to try and figure out a way to maybe just filter in not canned applause or anything like that. That would be cheesy. But maybe just some kind of background buzz, like what a like normal a giant audience white is noise like. Machine. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I imagine there's audio from crowds over the years. And if you could just replicate the, the, that noise, something that just stands over. I mean, guys were talking about how, how strange it was to be in the dugout and their conversations, if it was anything above a normal uh, voice, would be heard by everywhere. Like, you know, and that stuff is normal. Guys were kind of on eggshells because of that. And I would have to think that baseball would want players to be a little more comfortable just from a performance standpoint so they can get out there and, and play. But it will be as close to pure baseball as you can get. And games were fast. It was two hours and three minutes. I was lightning fast that day. Um, although part of that was the, the fact that it was 6 nothing, But um, I, I would have to think there will be some serious looks at that game and, and talking to people about that game um, before they, they played anything to figure out ways they can enhance the experience or implement or uh, put in some implementations and, and enhance the experience. Uh, Dan, Dan Connolly and I do plan to write a follow-up story uh, from that with just some observations from people and the idea of playing games in the future without fans. What, and one of the things that uh, players said they, they didn't want to celebrate and cheer as much as they might normally do because of the fact that the other team could hear them and they felt it was disrespectful. They couldn't like mutter comments about the umpire under their breath because he would hear them. They could hear Gary Thorne calling the game up in the booth, which was insane that even that all the way up there traveled down to them. And I think at one point, uh, Thorne did an inning or part of an inning uh, in a in a slow or in a low golf commentator voice. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he did his master's voice, which was classic. Um, but yeah, the Gary Thorne, uh, you know, like I was talking about, sort of the awkward feel for it. First inning, Chris Davis hits that home run, and Gary Thorne has a booming voice, anyways. And we didn't hear the TV monitors; we heard Gary Thorne. And his voice was 10 feet above us in the announcer's booth, which is directly over the uh, press box. And he, he does his home run call. And everybody hears it, and we realize we can hear it. And we just all started laughing. Like, there were 75. The press box was jam-packed full. There were no empty seats. And and everybody just started laughing because they didn't know what to do. You know, it was just a strange situation. And here's Gary Thorne's voice doing his home run call something we'd never hear during a game and everybody just blurted it out laughing. So it was a strange day all around, but um, you know, the Adam Eaton thing was cool too, where you, he mentioned he muttered to himself on a strike call and he realized that Jerry Lane, who was the home plate umpire could hear it. And, and he meant <laughs> he didn't want to disrespect him because it was his first at bat. And so he said, sorry at the end of it before he walked away. And so definitely some unique experiences that day. Yeah, there's just so many logistical issues that baseball has to figure out to even stage a game at all. And then on top of that, this article now makes you think about all the other things that come up from even if you can implement a, a plan where you have no fans in the stadium, you know, what is that experience going to look like? It's one thing to do it one day for a one-off, like you said, Dan, but if there's going to be an entire season played like this, um, 
it's going to be interesting to see uh, what sort of measures are taken to do that. But uh, if you haven't read that on The Athletic, uh, it's up right now. You can find it uh, under Dan Hayes's uh, byline if you follow Dan, or otherwise I believe it's on both the Baltimore and Chicago feeds for the Orioles and White Sox, obviously not um, – a twins article per se. So if you follow the twins, you, you may not have seen it uh, yet. So you can find it there and look forward to uh, your follow-up Dan with the other Dan. We should have the other Dan on the podcast when you do that follow-up story. Yeah, that, that would be a, That's what a we should, good, uh, yeah, I think, I think we will. And that'll be somewhere closer to when the season starts and Zach, it's going to start uh, all positive energy here. Um, positive it's going to have, yes, zillion challenges without question but uh let's think positive baseball would be a nice distraction throughout the summer my mistake will do um the other (laughs) article uh, that you wrote this week dan which is much more twins relevant uh was a awesome awesome look back at the 2002 american league division series uh which of course was the twins defeating the oakland athletics the Moneyball oakland athletics in five games uh, the reason we did it when we did it was because we had a, a series of articles running on the site about teams' most important moments over the last uh, 20 years, I believe it was. And I guess somewhat sadly, that is uh, that, that definitely stands as the most important moment on the field anyway for the Twins in the last 20 years. It's the last time they've even won a playoff series, which is still just a crazy thing to think about. But uh, I think anybody who's read the book Moneyball or seen the movie Moneyball who's a Twins fan, is forever pissed off about how little that movie acknowledges the fact that this brilliant strategy that got so much credit that Brad Pitt started in a movie about it uh, didn't even get out of the first round and the Twins were the team to beat it. The Twins do end the movie making the final out, uh, but are, are largely ignored throughout both the movie and the book, as you as you pointed out in the lead. But so many uh, major players from that team, A.J. Pierzynski, Torrey Hunter, um, who am I forgetting? Terry Ryan, Corey Koski, uh, uh, Eddie Gordado. Yeah, Eddie Gordado, yeah. David Ortiz. <laughs> um, and most of those guys are quoted in the story. But um, but you walk us through the whole five games, and, and there's so much stuff that I kind of forgotten about here, you know, 18 years later. But how crazy that game one was and the way it started for the Twins. And, and But just talk a little bit about um, putting the story together and, and some of the things that, that stuck out to you about it. Yeah, well, one, uh, you mentioned the money ball and lack of references. The the clearly, my favorite reference was the clearly inferior Minnesota Twins had beaten the A's and Billy Bean was still rankled about it a week later. And it's like, I, I bet that uh, if uh, the author could go back, and it was a fantastic book, by the way. I mean, let's let's be honest. That, the idea is that it brought about and, and just... People for years, I love the old timers that were like, Moneyball, it's an unbased percentage. No, it's about exploiting market inefficiencies. And that's everywhere. There's just, you know, now it's, for a while it was toolsy guys that that had fallen down and, and were affordable. And soon it's going to be uh, home, home run hitters, veterans. Teams are going to pick up on this and be able to put together a team of affordable, good veterans for very cheap and you know, it evolves. But anyways, um, I would imagine if the author could go back and, and write the book 10 years later, he would maybe have different things to say about that Twins team. Just given how talented that roster was and the longevity of the guys on that team, <clears throat> I think there were like 10 or 11 guys that had eight or longer years 
uh, in the majors, and a bunch had 10 years. And um, it's it an amazing team that figured out how to win together, and then they put it together in this series where they were big underdogs. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the, the key for me was talking to A.J. Pierzynski. Um, God bless A.J. Pierzynski's, like, the best quote ever because he's the one who was a little bit upset about Moneyball. And it's funny because when I covered the White Sox, he was there had been quite a bit of shade thrown at the 2005 White Sox over the years in that um, as the Cubs were making their run to the World Series, people tended to forget that the White Sox had won it. It was like the city of Chicago has not had a World Series won it in 108 years. And, and people were like, wait, uh, the White Sox won in 2005. And and AJ uh, was very uh, disturbed by that too. But he he had some good quotes about how the the script of Moneyball should be written a little differently, and that she, uh, basically he thinks the Twins have had should have had a more prominent role in it. And it was it was a lot of fun to um, kind of dive into this with a lot of the guys. You know, Latroy Hawkins had some great observations and talked about Paul Molitor as a, an advanced scout having an impact on this because he knew Latroy Hawkins knew from Malder's scouting report that Miguel Tejada was swinging a heavy bat and throw all fastballs, no, no off speed stuff. And so he threw him eight straight fastballs in a key at bat in the bottom of the eighth inning twins of game five twins clinging to a one run lead. And, uh, he struck out Tejada with the time run aboard, um, you know, five weeks after Tejada had, hit a monster home run off Eddie Guardado. And, um, you know, so that there's some great insight there. And Michael Kadire was a rookie on that team. And he had some, some cool things to say just about how this team was so confident. And, uh, you know, AJ saying they were too young and too dumb to know any better when they, they had this just disastrous first inning in game one. Um, Eddie Guardado basically talking about how, his ass was sweating, and he couldn't spit, and uh, his heart was pounding through his chest after Mark Ellis hit the three-run homer in Game Five. I mean, there are just so many cool parts, and and you just the thing is, you had so many great characters on that team, and that doesn't even count David Ortiz, who, as Michael Kadire said at the time, and it didn't make it in. Um, we had David Ortiz. We needed Big Poppy, but we had David Ortiz. Um, the organization wouldn't let him be Big Poppy at the time, it, like. You think about that roster and you look at it, Torrey Hunter, Kadire, um, across the infield, Koski, Rivas, Guzman, and uh, over, you know, it, it was such a good team everywhere. Uh, Doug McKevich at first base, and he had some big home runs in that playoff series for a guy who wasn't a big home run hitter. I mean, it was a, a classic team, and a lot of guys had spectacular careers. And so anytime you get those guys – that have gone through the battles over the years, you can get some really good stories out of it. And uh, that was actually one of the more enjoyable pieces I've written uh, in a long time, just because getting to hear, you know, I spent an hour on the phone with Eddie Guardado on Saturday. We were supposed to publish this story last Friday, and uh, I got word that Eddie could talk to me on Saturday, and so we pushed it. And just talking to him for an hour, you know, he grew up in Stockton, which is 70 miles from the A's uh, stadium. And, so, like, it was just a total, we're going to use our first swear word of the day, this is a total mind fuck for him going in there. Uh, and, and he was definitely a guy who um, worked 
through it, got around a, a critical situation where he was in his own head and is facing dead arm. And uh, he got the last out, even though he gave up a three-run homer in the ninth inning. Um, it's just fun to hear guys recollect on this stuff because, you know, it's 18 years ago and it was clear that they all remembered it very well. It's hard to pick out my favorite part of it. Um, it, it definitely took me back to college. That might be my favorite part of it, that I got to um, be young again for an hour while I read this story. But um, the the getting lost on the BART train before game one, uh, I had never heard that story, but it's it's phenomenal. If you haven't read the story, uh, Brad Radke, Terry Ryan, and David Ortiz walked into a bar. No, uh, they went to the BART train to go from their hotel to the stadium because they wanted to avoid traffic. They listened to Ortiz who said he knew the way and he didn't and got them lost. So they ended up getting to the stadium very close to game time uh, and having to walk through the Oakland Coliseum parking lot, which is always an iffy place to be walking through. And, um, and uh, somebody recognized Radke apparently (laughs) on the walk, a fan, an A's fan. Uh, so just, just unbelievable stuff there. That was before Radke was due to start in game one. And then of course that game started off terribly for the twins, bunch of errors fell behind five to one, eventually rallied to win it. Obviously without that rally, they're probably not winning the series lost the next two games, one game four pretty easily at the, at the Metrodome to get it back to Oakland. And then, uh, you know, cool story about the plane ride about, um, Eddie Guardado uh, was a Guardado who stood up and said, "We're not going back he to Oakland." He said a little bit about Mike Jackson. Mike Jackson. Mike Jackson. Mike Jackson was the uh, was really the guy, and and uh, both Terry Ryan and Eddie Guardado were super complimentary of Mike Jackson, who only was with the Twins for one year, but he brought that veteran presence. And he, I was a fan of his when he was on the '93 Giants. So he uh, he had some had gone through some some battles, and the game ended at like four thirty. Uh, Central Time on sun, uh, Saturday, and they had to play at three o'clock Central Time in Oakland on Sunday. So um, they were, everybody was like, "Man, we gotta get on the plane again." But uh, you know, re- uh, as as uh, Guardado called him, Reverend Jackson stood up and delivered, "Hey, if we're gonna go back there, we need to fucking win." So um, you know, if we're not going out there, we're not gonna waste this plane ride. And, Everybody talked about that. It felt like, I think Kadir, and I don't think I got to use the line, but it, uh, he said it felt like we were on a plane the entire series because there was only one off day in between games two and three. And, um, just a, a lot of fun stuff to go and, and check out in there. Um, the the fact that Torrey Hunter, um, Rick Reed gave up four home runs in game three, I believe it was, and Torrey Hunter was responsible for the first one. It was a, it was a, if you look at the replay and I think we have it included in the story, that ball really did knuckle on him and it just skips by him first batter of the game. And that was one cool part was seeing how many people said they were at these games. I know you were at college Zach, but, uh, um, it's always fun to get people's stories about where they were at the moment. And you go from this super loud Metrodome crowd to Rick Reed, giving up two home runs right away to start game three. And, uh, the, Twins got blitzed that day, so um, there was so much that went on. It's harder to do a, a story like this on a series than a uh, than one game. You know, we've done like the oral histories in the past on Jack Morris's Game Seven, and we did it on Game One Sixty Three from the two thousand nine season. And both those, 
it's a lot easier to get people's uh, reactions to one game and, and figure out what goes in the story. And this was is tricky because you I want to talk to more people and, and get more thoughts. And I didn't talk to Menkevich. I didn't talk to Guzman or Rivas. I didn't talk to Radke. Um, I didn't talk to Jock Jones. There were so many guys that just couldn't get to because there's five games to cover. And it's really hard. There were so many good anecdotes. This could have very easily been a 20,000-word story if we had kept diving into it. And just uh, the, the little tidbits that come out, I mean, the, the bit about Molitor uh, scouting Miguel Tejada and being convinced that he was tired and was refusing to switch to a lighter bat, telling Hawkins to throw all fastballs in that game five at bat, that was so important. Great stuff. Eddie Gordado, everything he said in that story pretty much was um, was hilarious or, or and or insightful. I mean, the fact that he was freaking out on the mound in, in game five a little bit and told Rick Anderson he didn't have any spit in his mouth. And I, I think I tweeted it out, but just I, I can imagine Ron Gardenhire as a rookie manager uh, very getting very dangerously close to blowing a five to one lead in the ninth inning of game five of a series, watching Rick Anderson coming back from that meeting on the mound and what he's about to hear from his pitching coach. And how do you, how do you decide <laughs> to leave a guy out there when he basically told you he's, he's having a nervous breakdown on the, on the mound, but he did, it worked out. Uh, thanks to Denny Hawking for catching that ball. By the way, fun fact, Denny Hawking, I think, had to miss the entire ALCS because he got hurt in the post-game celebration after catching the final out, or maybe it was just uh, a game or two, I forget, but he, like, lacerated his hand on a cleat in the in the post-game pile after making the final out, which is unfortunate and classic, but it was great stuff. I think I, I remember running out of whatever building I was watching the game in and, and doing laps around some quad or another on the college campus. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a great day. If you haven't read the story again, that one is also, uh, uh, in Dan Hayes's feed on the twins page. Of course, it's a fantastic read. We have some more coming up from Dan. Uh, we're not going to spoil him here, but keep your eyes peeled. We also still have Aaron Gleeman doing his, uh, season simulation with Dan chiming in with some, uh, gentle or not so gentle uh, ribbing of, of his assess of his, uh, strategy with the team. But, the fake twins are still in first place, so since we don't have the real twins, you can go root them on on the site. Uh, Aaron is also going position by position to list the best twins seasons in history. Uh, just did center field, which you can guess who's the star of that list, and we have a few more to go in that series as well. So uh, thanks to everybody for sticking with us in these times. We just had a company meeting today where – um, once again, it, it's astounding to see the support that we've still had, even though we know it's, it's tough out there for pretty much everybody at this point. So thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Thanks for subscribing and all that. Dan, any final thoughts? Yeah. Uh, let's, let's tease one thing and it's going to be a couple of weeks away, but, uh, sources say the first pick in the, uh, <laughs> all time or the twins draft might be Kirby Puckett. Sources say, yes. Um, yeah. Uh, and and do I really have to write why that I picked him first overall? <laughs> yeah, we're doing a uh, we're going to draft our all time Twins teams, the three of us. So we'll have three different teams. Obviously, only each player can only go once to one person, and then we're going to figure out some way to f- declare a winner. I don't know if we're going to have a fan vote or Aaron says he can simulate the teams, even though they're going to be players from different eras. That's kind of intriguing to find out what that would look like, but uh we'll see so study up dan get your uh get your depth charts your big boards ready to go because it's going to be it's going to be intense competition 
I, I suspect that I will have a top heavy team uh, compared with uh, you and Aaron with your years of twins knowledge. But I could yeah, kill gonna, you guys. We're going to kill you on, on depth. Giants. We're going to kill you on depth. Yeah. You will, for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, everybody. We will catch you next time.